0: Chapter 2 of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mrs. L. Sid. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter 2 The Making of Cordelia. Since this history is primarily a record of a brief period in the life of Cordelia Marlowe, then, to understand the striking, gay, impulsive, confident creature that Cordelia was at 23, one must be equipped with some further knowledge of her family and of Cordelia's history. The Marlows were, for generations, one of the bluest families in that unnumbered group which tradition has baptized under the numerical name of the 400. The family had once upon a time been wealthy, though the Marlows had never been wealthy upon the scale by which present fortunes are considered. The later males of the Marlowe family, however, had lacked the ability to retain what the earlier Marlowe's had acquired, though there had always been sufficient to maintain the family name as one of the best in New York City. But Cordelia's thoroughly likable father, that almost famous polo player, had, in an even greater degree than any of his forebears, the gift of letting money slip through his hands, so that when a galloping pony stumbled with him, and he was picked up dying, This was when Cordelia was twelve, the lawyers had to report to his widow that the estate had almost passed out of existence with its last proprietor. There was something left, however, and Bernice Marlowe, who had always had everything, saw no reason why she should still not have everything, or at least the appearance of everything. There followed great internal economies, of course, and some borrowing, of which affairs it was not the world's business to have any knowledge so the long-legged Cordelia was kept on at her very exclusive private school. Lily, eight years younger, was as yet no such economic problem. After which, as parents who are somebody do with their daughters, and as also do parents of recent wealth who want to be somebody, Cordelia was sent at 14 to one of the hundreds of girls finishing schools which find the vicinage of New York a rich soil for their growth and prosperity. Harcourt Hall was, of course, one of the most, if not actually the most, exclusive of these schools. Miss Harcourt, for the prestige of her establishment, tactfully did her very best to restrict her enrollment to girls who came from families of established social position. Miss Harcourt recognized and deplored the growing fact—she never saw the fact in the light of social phenomenon of American life with consequent social problems—that never before were there so many Americans with new-made fortunes and never so many new families who were trying to promote their daughters to higher social spheres by sending them to schools where they might mix and establish valuable relations with the daughters of the socially elect. This practice was abhorrent to Miss Harcourt— and it may be said, to the credit of her watchfulness, that few indeed were the upstarts who escaped her scrutiny and got within her walls to soil her carefully chosen group and mount ambition ward upon them. Harcourt Hall sits in withdrawn dignity upon one of Long Island's main highways, some thirty miles out of New York City. To the neighbors, to motorists who pass and repass it, to the members of the nouveau rich who would enter, It offers to the eye no more than a long stretch of high brick wall, a lofty pair of wrought iron grates with a porter's lodge on guard beside them. Watchful observers see these gates swing open only when big cars with liveried chauffeurs come on Friday afternoon to whisk away young ladies, and then return these young ladies Sunday night or Monday morning, or when of an afternoon, the day's toil done, the gates emit a speedster with a girl at its wheel on some afternoons, several such cars, on the errand of clearing away the cobwebs of study by racing against the winds of Long Island. To the initiate there is presented a very different view, a park that is carpeted by meticulously shorn lawn, ribboned with drives of white gravel that curve in and out among noble elms and glistening copper beeches. In the heart of this splendid seclusion sit three spacious buildings of closely related architecture, For all are of red brick, and their trim of white woodwork has something of the majesty of the colonial, the gymnasium, the dormitory, and the administration building, the latter containing most of the classrooms and the office of Miss Harcourt, whose sanctum is finished with a rich austerity as might have been the room of a not-too-unworldly abbess. It was a wonderful place, Harcourt Hall. It taught a girl sureness of herself, the proper manner to carry herself through the great world." At Harcourt Hall, Cordelia shone, but not because of excellence in her studies. While the curriculum of Harcourt Hall, as published in the elaborate yearbook, was rather extensive, even including business courses which none of the girls took, regular application to study was not required. Miss Harcourt was very considerate in this respect. It was enough if her dear charges did just as much work as they wanted to. Their careers, would be those of ladies, Cordelia had a jolly time during her four years at this model school for young ladies, which has so many duplicates and imitations teaching their tens of thousands of girls the ways of gentility. She was popular not only with the other girls, but with a very proper Miss Harcourt, whose invariable wear was black silk, and who might have been of almost any year above 45, for Miss Harcourt knew all of the secrets of preserving the appearance of an imposing middle age. Miss Harcourt fully realized that Cordelia was not rich as the other girls were rich, but then Cordelia had tremendous family and was in every way an ornament to the school. "'My dear, I am just sending off the very best report to your mother,' she said in her grand damn manner in Cordelia's last year. "'You are one girl, I may say the girl, Harcourt Hall will always be proud of.' And indeed, when Cordelia graduated, which was when she was 18, she was easily the star of Harcourt Hall. She was the school star at swimming, tennis, riding, and basketball. Also, she drove a car with the daring, if not with quite the skill of a professional racing driver. She knew the periods when the traffic officers were off duty and so could let her car out with the minimum danger of arrest. Also, she was an instinctive dancer, a love of a dancer, the girls called her. And very incidentally, she knew enough of the modest academic requirements of Harcourt Hall to graduate not quite at the bottom of her class. Aileen Harkness ranked next below her, and both Gladys Norworth and Jackie Thorndyke had too much money and standing not to be given their diplomas. Cordelia's debut a year afterwards at Sherry's, then an institution and not as now a memory. Though modest as to cost, was everything it should have been as to its appointments, and the best people were present. Her mother had carefully seen to these matters. After her debut, Cordelia's mother patiently and in silence waited for her to marry any one of the several nice, rich young men who paid her court. Cordelia would swim with any of them, and outswim them, play tennis with any of them, and give any of them a man's game, and would dance with any of them or all of them till morning but not one of them would she marry she got rather bored with saying no though always she felt genuinely sorry for the perfectly tailored heartbroken young men she had to say it to during the year and a half america fought in the great war cordelia of course threw herself into the work of entertaining the untrained soldiers encamped near new york as did most of the girls of her set this was most exciting the boys in their blanket-fitting uniforms were such dears. What the young fellows liked best was to have her drive them about, and at times her imported sports car, she still drove the same smart racer, scuttling through country roads could scarcely be seen because of the very large portion of the American expeditionary Army, which was attempting to adhere to it. But presently the war was over, the soldiers were demobilized, and Cordelia declared peace, though the official government was less prompt and turned to other matters when some two or three years had thus been spent in war relief work and in having a good time socially and in being a brilliant sportswoman and in rejecting proposal jerry plimpton had not as yet developed into a serious consideration and when at the end of this period cordelia was still unwed and even unbetrothed her mother at last lost something of the patience she had been exercising with such difficulty Mrs. Marlowe, with affectionate, deprecatory insistence, demanded that Cordelia marry one of the several desirable suitors, and backed up this demand by revealing something of the Marlowe financial circumstances, which until then she had protectingly withheld. Thirty thousand a year, they'd been reduced to that and the strain of making ends meet on that figure. Well, Mrs. Marlowe simply could not stand it much longer. Cordelia was sorry about the finances— She would do her best to keep down her expenses, but she was not ready to marry. Perhaps a little later she might, almost any time a man might come along whom she really loved. Cordelia had never known any sort of life but this which she lived, and it simply did not enter her consciousness that any other sort of life was possible. But after this talk with her mother, Cordelia did all she saw practical to reduce expenses. There are innumerable ways of living cheaply and at the same time appearing to live otherwise, which are open secrets to many women of Cordelia's world and likewise to many men. Of course, the Park Avenue apartment meant cash, 9000 a year. But though Cordelia always looked smart, she managed those that her clothes cost as little as possible, and she managed those that her food cost her in cash, nothing at all. There was always a luncheon party, a dinner party, a weekend party, a yachting party as she had told jackie she was a guest at this big house for a week and that big house for a month there was hardly ever an empty hour in her engagement book she was welcome everywhere sought for on all sides she was so clever she instinctively put life into the other guests she was so good at every sport and what counted most of all with the women though she was immensely popular with the men she lacked utterly the instinct to take another woman's man away from her or to monopolize male attention. She was a brilliantly successful guest, she worked hard at being a guest, and so spontaneous were all her social expressions that she worked without ever knowing she was working. Such was Cordelia Marlowe, made what she was by birth, home traditions, school training, and the practices of the world into which she had naturally been projected, distinctly herself, altogether different, yet in many ways typical of the 10000 plus or a 100,000-plus, other girls turned out by Harcourt Hall and its peers and its struggling imitations. Magnificent became attached to Cordelia's name in much the way that most of the nicknames of everyday life and the much more formal sobriquets of history became attached to their owners, through some minor incident, through the color of the hair, size of a body, a limp, a crooked back, a terrible temper, a splendid manner. In Cordelia's case, it had been her manner, Her very handsome and very popular father, when she was newly born, had paid her only the casual attention, which is the common attitude of fathers, until their offspring begin to emerge from that mere generalization which is infancy into an individuality of their own. Besides, during those early days, Mr. Marlowe was either very busy practicing to make the American polo team, or as equally busy at some of his various clubs, discussing America's chance of bringing back the cup from England. But when Cordelia was between one and two, and her father had failed to make the team he was a brilliant performer, but he liked his whiskey and the good fellowship of his clubs too well to be a dependable player, he began to take more adequate notice of his first born. Already, he noted, she had the true Marlowe air, the air which had made him so popular, made him accepted as a leader among his fellows, an air composed of genuine good nature, pleasantly imperious self confidence an implicit belief that of course she was going to have her own way, and that of course her way was the best way. A true Marlowe, he ejaculated proudly. God, but she's a magnificent child. Magnificent. He liked that word, magnificent. In his pride as a Marlowe, in his pride as a new father, it seemed to him that magnificent exactly hit off his daughter. The word had a fine flavor upon the tongue, and he used it again and again. Like so many chance words, chance phrases repeatedly uttered by fond parents over their young, this word adhered to Cordelia. It remained with her through childhood, through her school days, and even through the years that followed, though the father who had bestowed it had then long been resting under a very handsome monument. Her father had been quite right. She had the manner, the dash, to carry off the word. Nowadays, in her young maturity, the word, whenever it was used— was used lightly and half-humorously, but never with irony or contempt, as might have been the case had Cordelia herself taken the word too seriously. She seemed to regard it as an inescapable but good-natured jest, trailing her from childhood. Most people, however, in their hearts seriously believed Cordelia deserved the title, and down in her own heart of hearts, Cordelia was inclined to believe the same. Physically, this title seemed a garment made for her, She was above the middle height, was strongly and splendidly built, and withal was rarely light and graceful. And her face deserved the attention that the photograver section of the Sunday papers had for years been giving it, regular in its dark beauty, with an aliveness of mind and spirit, with a high good-natured confidence which removed all danger of that monotony which so often is the fatal accompany of beautiful facial regularity the kind of vital, sparkling beauty that is most properly crowned with just such glinting reddish-brown hair as was hers. She would hardly have been normal or human had she not privately believed in this appellation of her childhood. She had always been a brilliant star, and popular as such even among her girlfriends. She had never faced a situation which she had not carried off with ease. That is, not until this situation had arisen which she had just outlined to Jackie Thorndyke. End of chapter two.